0: Hello, and welcome back to the second part of this Master Investor Podcast with me, Jonathan Davis, and Nick Train, founder of Linsell Train, the fund management boutique and manager in company with his partner, Mike Linsell, of the Linsell Train UK Equity Fund, the Linsell Train Global Equity Fund, the manager also of the Finsbury Growth and Income Investment Trust, and the two of them are joint managers of Linsell Train an investment trust which holds a very significant shareholding in the Linsel Train management company, which has been a great source of profits over the last 20 years. We finished the last, the first part of this podcast uh, talking about Fevertree, the UK drinks company, and we move on next to talk about valuations in the stock market, in particular reference to the kind of companies that uh, Train own. So that brings us then on to another issue, which is about valuations. I mean, because you, as you say, you buy companies with durable franchises and so on, and big moats and so on, and you're looking for returns on capital of, of in excess of 10%. Obviously, that's they're going to compound the value of the company at that rate, but the share price is going to move around that particular trend line, if you like. So, are you actually saying that there's no price at which you would actually sell one of the companies in your portfolio because it's become too expensive or more than you can justify? Or are you would just say that the valuation will correct over time uh, and therefore we're just going to hold on through whatever gyrations the stock market chooses to go through?
1: Listen, my answer to this question is going to sound inadequate, but nonetheless, my answer answer and our behaviour, I think, carries more value for the average investor than the counter proposition that you and I might discuss. People trade too much and they trade for what, in hindsight, turn out to be irrational reasons based on misapprehensions. I'd like to say an answer to your question. In fact, I can't quite remember how you phrased it, but I'd like to say We'd prefer never to sell. And as you suggest, we would prefer to hold an asset that becomes overvalued for a period of time. We'd prefer to do that, even though that would probably mean that it would fall at some point. We'd rather do that than back ourselves to be regularly trading the portfolio on the basis of short-term moves in currencies or interest rates or inflation. Because that's the loser's game. We know objectively over-trading and particularly trading on macroeconomic that is a loser's game for most investors. I don't say I win all the time because the last couple of years showed that I don't. But a winning game is to hang on to the equity of rare, valuable companies that have long-term potential for their business. And I think if you're going to err uh, or you're going to make a mistake, I would recommend everybody makes the mistake of trading too infrequently rather than too frequently. Is, is that fair? Can I say it like that?
0: Yes, that makes a lot of sense to me
1: and I think it's borne out by the experience of
0: uh, most of the very successful investors that I've ever studied, and I've studied a few in my time. (laughs) Absolutely, I would totally agree with that. Uh, But it's not something which is, uh, it's easy to say, perhaps, and, and not so easy for people to actually live by, if I can put it that way. But if we move on from that, and if I ask a question about valuation in a slightly different way, I mean, if it was the case that we are entering a period when, in contrast to the last 20 years during which you've been running your business. Interest rates are going to be higher than they have been. They've been declining, obviously, over the last 20 years on the whole. Uh, They're going to be higher on some sort of semi-permanent basis. And inflation is going to be higher than it has been over the last few years. Does it logically follow that the valuations which are placed on all companies should be lower? And if that's the case, how would the valuations of the kind of companies that you own, how would they, should they be affected by that kind of environment, if that's where we are heading.
1: How old are you, Jonathan? Uh, old enough
0: to draw attention. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, listen, my career began in um, the very early 1980s. And, you know, the UK stock market had a dividend yield of six and a price earnings ratio of eight. And unquestionably, one of the powerful explanatory factors behind that, in hindsight, low valuation was that interest rates were in double digits and inflation was out of control. If you posit to me that the next 20 years is going to be a phase where monetary inflation is out of control, then bad things will happen. I promise you things will be better for Diageo and companies similar to Diageo than for the average company. That has no moat or has no high and sustainable level of, of core profitability, but nonetheless, it would not be helpful for Diageo.
0: I mean, even if you've got companies that got a pricing power, as your companies uh, most of them do, and therefore they can sustain their revenues at least, but there would still be an impact from higher interest rates—not direct in terms of balance sheets and debt and stuff, but in just in terms of the way that investors treat uh, equities. Would that listen, would that listen, be better? Listen.
1: So, John Templeton said, and he was right, and his track record demonstrates that he was right. So, John Templeton said, when macro conditions are deteriorating, that is the best time to be invested in sound common stocks. And he's talking not about making money, he's talking about a way to preserve the long term value of your capital. That's what we all care about. What asset can you own? Not that it means that it's going to go up every year, but at the end of a given period of time, you're going to have owned something that's likely to have retained its real after-inflation value. The one thing we know for sure is that debt, and particularly government debt and cash, is likely to be debauched in the kind of circumstances that I don't know whether you predict it. I don't know. But I really feel, you know, if I was prone to panic, which I try not to be, but if I was prone to panic, what you really should be panicking about is your cash or your fixed income investments, because they're the ones that history tells you are going to be obliterated. Actually owning equity, whether that be in property or in sound common stocks, that's likely to see you through better. So gilt yields, long conventional gilt yields are are at five, are they, today? I mean, it's been a huge collapse in the gilt market. I think yields either yesterday or today touch 5%. They're moving quite Uh, fast, that's for sure, yeah. I still think, you know, what you should say is, and who knows where they are in a year's time, I'm the faintest idea, but let's say five. Invert it. I know we've had this conversation. Invert what is a yield of five? It's a price-earnings ratio of 20. Is that right?
0: If the earnings yield is 5, it's 20. Yeah, absolutely. yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you're being presented with a choice. Would you rather own Diageo on 20, 21 times earnings, or would you rather own a Gilt, where with the Gilt, you have no inflation protection, no underlying secular growth whatsoever, or would you rather own this incredible company that, even the you know the most cursory look at it, its history has shown you that it's a business that's been able to negotiate a very wide range of economic and political backdrops over time that's i so. wish the whole portfolio was invested in diageo life would be a lot simpler unfortunately we have to have a collection of businesses i'm not sure we own anything in the portfolio, to my mind, that is quite as predictable as Diageo. But that's the effect that we're looking to capture with the structure of the portfolio.
0: You do have a number of stocks in there which you've described as stock market proxies. You have used that phrase, I think, in the past. And among them are things like Hargwick's Lansdowne and LSE, and so on. Are they not in a slightly different category than Diageo in terms of what they might be capable of achieving? I mean, If we are in a different environment, then surely the stock market is not going to perform as well as it has done in some periods in the past. And uh, the stock market proxies will be to some extent affected by that. Would that not be a a, a comment one could make?
1: Old men get pessimistic, Jonathan, as you well know. (laughs) Um, I, I may be at least as old as you, but I'm trying to avoid slipping into that fundamental category error. No. You know, Particularly in the context, I'll just remind you, in the context of the UK, the stock market is only up 20%. Now, forget income, that's that's added to the – But the capital return is only 20% for the FT All Share Index over the last 22, 23 years. Are you telling me it's going to be worse than that over the next 22 years, in which case – Really, I'm going to take early retirement. Actually, I think that there's plenty of reasons to think that the UK stock market could be a lot more rewarding over the next couple of decades and investing in sound businesses with conservative balance sheets and strong franchises that offer you a participation in the improved fortunes of the UK stock market and the UK economy. That could be one of the most rewarding parts of her portfolio, I hope. I hope. But listen, again, again, forgive me for reiterating this, but I think I couldn't do this job. I mean, I've done it a long time. I couldn't do it if I got up in the morning and felt pessimistic. I need that incentive to believe things are going to be better. And I'd say, you you know, if an investor with us disagrees with that optimism or, or is pessimistic, then... You know, maybe find a different strategy because we'll be running this on the basis that the best is yet to come. And the best is yet to come for the London Stock Exchange. The best is yet to come for Hargreaves Lansdowne, probably for Schroeder's as well. These are young businesses with huge runways of growth ahead of them.
0: Just on that point then, I mean, actually, as you've correctly, I think, implied, I am not a pessimist, actually. I'm an extreme optimist, a foolish optimist, probably, despite my advancing years. But this year in particular, do you think, therefore, with some of these stocks, Fever Tree down 60%? Hargre's Lansdowne is down, I don't know how much it is. It's, it's a lot anyway. <laughs> it's been selling off for a period. And uh, there's obviously been some factors behind that. The Woodford scandal was was unfortunate for them. Do you think the stock market has just got it wrong? Or is it just the fact that the stock market doesn't really think in the same medium to long-term horizon that you do? I mean, when you talk to analysts in the city, if you do, I can't remember, you probably don't actually anymore. <laughs> you probably just plow your own research. But um, you know, do you think these analysts who've Say, sell highways, lands are wrong, or
1: what are they? Misguided? Yeah, you know, you mustn't provoke me to say things that I might I was trying to provoke you. offend valued friends or counterparties. There is a very active, and I approve of this, by the way, there is a very active hedge fund community worldwide, and there's a very active hedge fund community shorting UK stocks because it's turned out for a variety of reasons to be a good way for hedge funds to make money. The UK stock market has been pretty damn friendless, at least since Brexit. And it's all one way. And I do think, bless them, I think that analysts have to provide the messages and ideas that their clients want. And I think hedge funds are looking for Short ideas, stocks to short in the UK. And some of them we own, some of them we don't own. Listen, it's possible for me to be right about Fever Tree and for a hedge fund selling the shares short to be right as well, because the hedge fund is probably taking a one month view and I'm taking a five or seven year view. The hedge fund can make a profit, but I can buy shares more cheaply in an outstanding business with a global brand and £100 million of net cash on its balance sheet. Fevertree is not going to go bust, by the way. Let's just be clear about that. It's a very robust business in many regards. We can all be right. Personally, I do think that the UK stock market is strategically cheap for a collection of macroeconomic issues that could well unwind over the next three years. But I don't know that I'd want to make that the central proposition about what I'm doing or what we're doing. What I would say, and I again, I'd repeat myself slightly, but I've mentioned it about Diageo, I've mentioned it about Experian, I've mentioned it about the London Stock Exchange, I've mentioned it about Fevertree. The fact is that the UK stock market, despite its abysmal performance, is nonetheless home to not a few truly significant global businesses that are as good at what they do as any company in the world. And I can demonstrate that the valuation gap between the UK company that is as good as anything else in the world and similar companies elsewhere is very wide currently, to the disadvantage of UK companies. I think that that creates a nice kicker to the underlying growth that I'm sure these businesses are going to deliver over the next decade. At some point, there could be a marked re-rating if investors ever get to the end of their complete disdain for sterling assets in the UK stock market.
0: Right. Well, we're not going to talk about, you know, UK politics and UK policies or Brexit or any of that. I'm sure they, they have been a factor in the reasons that uh, a lot of investors have steered clear of UK sterling assets, as you said. And uh, maybe there'll be some catalyst that changes that particular perspective. But I wanted to ask you also about the impact of As I mentioned at the beginning, you've had some fund flows, which has been an exception in in a way from your 20-year career because you've mostly had inflows hoovering up a lot of assets uh, very successfully. What is the impact of having to, you know, in your open-ended funds, obviously you have to sell things in order to uh, meet redemptions and so on. How have you tackled that process? I mean, I think you mentioned at one point that it was actually part of the process by which you ended up getting out of your position in Pearson, which had not been a great success. But- how do you approach that issue in, in terms of the uh, open-ended funds? And uh, how does that contrast to what you have to do in the investment trust, Finsbury Growth and Income? Is it, you know There should be an advantage to the trust in that respect, you would think.
1: Well, let me just take the second part of the question head on. Quite rightly, with my complete support, the Board of Finsbury Growth and Income Trust has an active share buyback policy when the shares are trading at a discount. And as a result, over the last 12 months, Finsbury has bought back quite a material capital amount of its shares, and that has to be funded. (laughs) Either we could let debt go up, or if the number of shares in issue is declining, we need to raise cash to neutralise that. And Debt hasn't gone up very much for Finsbury, which I think is a prudent stance to take. So, we actually have had to sell some assets out of Finsbury to ensure that conservatism of the balance sheet, just to be clear about that.
0: So, there is a similar impact, but it's not perhaps as pronounced. Yeah. Okay. Perhaps it's not
1: as pronounced, but it could be. It could be, yeah. It's important. Well, it means that there is less of a difference between our open ended and Finsbury, as you might think. I mean, let's just say one thing. We are invested predominantly in FTSE 100 companies. And the UK strategy, well over 60% of it is invested in the biggest UK companies. We have had no problem at all dealing with the flows in or out of the strategy over this period. I mean, we monitor the liquidity of all of our strategies. Actually, it's improved over the last 18 months, as some of the really big liquid holdings have become even bigger within the context of the portfolio. My emotional attitude towards it, which I I think is important, I mean, obviously one has an intellectual attitude as well, my emotional impact is Mike and I have always felt tremendously privileged to be offered the opportunity to be a steward of other people's precious savings. And we've always felt humbled that people would trust us with their precious savings. And if for whatever reason, and in this case, because we've not performed very well over the last couple of years, 18 months, if because of that, we've lost the confidence of some of those investors and they want to take the capital away from us, then that's absolutely fine. And there's no sense of, you know, annoyance about it. We still think it's a privilege that we're in a position to carry on doing what we do. The only thing that rankles with me, and maybe sometimes it's a little bit of an excuse that's given, but I I also know that there are people who are doing this because they sincerely believe it. The only thing that rankles with me is when people say we're redeeming because we've given up on the UK stock market. You know, I do hear that from people, and that's not a good thing to do. That's an irrational thing to do. I mean, if you don't think we can perform in the UK, that's one thing. Fine, give it to somebody else who you think has got a better UK strategy than us. But don't give up on a stock market that's only up 20% over the last 20 years. That's the only aspect of this that frustrates me.
0: So we're coming to the end of our time now, Nick, and it's been really interesting conversation. And um, I guess I should ask you about this. I mean, you've said, I think publicly, that you and Mike are going to carry on doing this for at least another seven years. I think, well, that was earlier this year, I think. So you obviously haven't lost your enthusiasm for this. It, it
1: sounds as though I might have done. No, not
0: at all. Not at all. It sounds as if you're just as committed as you were when you started, and I think that's uh, the one thing that I think most people would be most keen to find out, as it were, to test, because there are lots of examples of farm managers who have been successful who either get bored or uh, you know lose interest or made enough money they want to go and do something profoundly different, or some of them may just. Um, Well, I don't want to mention Mr. Woodford again, but they may may go off piste a little bit. But you're not in that category. You're here, you're training up some younger people. You've launched a new fund, a North American fund, which is still quite small. But um, tell us about the way the firm is and uh, what else you might be hoping to do over the next seven years or longer, depending on what that
1: turns out to be. Well, Jonathan, I know we've discussed this before. You know, the people you and I admire the most in this industry those people for who it's clearly the calling it's vocational it's a hobby the the fascination of it is all embracing and i've always admired the people who go on and on and assuming that i can retain or as a business we can retain the confidence of our clients that's my heartfelt ambition would be to go on and on you know if our clients say These guys have lost it. That's fine as well. I mean, that's fine as well. But the ambition would be to go on and on. I do acknowledge, though, in my heart, I find that I have a new ambition. It's not displacing that ambition, but a new ambition that's developing, which is we do have some less experienced colleagues. But I mean, one of them's been with us 12 years, one of them's been with us 10 years, another's been with us seven years. And I know how talented those colleagues are. And Mike and I would love to find a way while keeping the consistency of the investment approach and the integrity of what we're trying to do to get these less experienced younger colleagues more and more involved in the business because mm-hmm. they deserve it. And because I'm sure it would be beneficial to our clients as well. So that's a challenge for us to manage that over the next period. I don't, I don't know how long, but that's the way I put it.
0: And in terms of funds, the North American Fund, what was the thinking behind that? And, and what other funds could you do?
1: I mean, you've got a global, you've got a UK fund.
0: What else could there be?
1: The, the, the point of that fund is that Mike and I have nothing to do with it. So it's the first mandate where Mike and I, we're investors, but that's the extent of our involvement. And it's an opportunity for the rest of the team to create something where we can't say that it's our success or our failure. But you know, there was another reason for launching that North America fund, which is that America remains the home of entrepreneurial innovation. And we wanted to ensure that we weren't just researching the US economy, we were actually investing in the US economy as well in an attempt to make money for our clients. And we know that learnings from that strategy will have ramifications for our global fund. Frankly, it has ramifications for our UK and Japanese strategies as well, because successful businesses in the United States tend to get replicated around the rest of the world. So it's an important learning for the company as well. Even though, I mean, historically, there's been
0: very few UK fund managers who've managed to outperform the US market. It's a very difficult market to outperform. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that. I guess uh, Findlay Park would be one you would mention, which done very well over the years. But that's not really part of your thinking. You weren't thinking that uh, this is a market that's ripe for outperformance. It's just a way of developing a new strand of the business. Have I got that right?
1: Yeah, no, you got it right. I could say a lot more, but let's leave it like that. That it creates an opportunity for our less experienced colleagues, and it brings valuable learnings for our core business as well.
0: Okay. well, look, on that note, Nick, it's been really good to talk to you again. And uh, as always, you've given... And you, Jonathan, thank you. ...very um, coherent and, dare I say, high conviction answers to the questions. I'm not trying to catch up Really, just trying to get a flavour of your thinking as we go through this uh, rather tricky period for most investors, where I think it's very important that uh, they should uh, hold fast to some... Eternal verities about uh, stock market investing. I think it's uh, particularly appropriate in these uh, times to hear your longer term perspective on that. So thank you very much for that.
1: This has been a Master Investor podcast, one of a series hosted by the professional investor and author Jonathan Davis. For more news, insights, and interviews with leading market experts, please visit the Master Investor website masterinvestor.co.uk.